This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dan Harris. Dan is a correspondent for ABC News, an anchor for Nightline, and a co-anchor for the weekend edition of Good Morning America. A former self-proclaimed skeptic of meditation and mindfulness, Dan became a believer after he had a panic attack on live national television in 2004. That panic attack put him on a search and led him to research the benefits of mindfulness and meditation. Dan's the author of the best-selling book, 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Really Works, A True Story. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, I had the privilege to talk to Dan about how meditation, in his view, has a PR problem and what might be required to introduce meditation to the uninitiated, especially to a generation of people who were raised in what he calls the age of irony. We also talked about how Dan's life has changed since becoming a meditator, how work relationships are different, how he balances his drive for success with equanimity, and how he deals differently with criticism. Finally, we talked about happiness and the real percentages that he's experiencing in his life about the impacts of meditation on his experience. Here's my conversation with the very generous Dan Harris. Dan, thank you so much for making the time in the midst of your busy broadcasting schedule to talk to Sounds True. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So what do you think is happening in the culture at this point in time now that meditation is entering the mainstream? What are the changes that make this a ripe situation? I think, I think the major driving force, I think there are a lot of them, but the, but the, but the biggie is the science. You know, it's the, it's, it carries so much uh, capital in our culture, science does, and it's what makes this practice that has long been viewed as fringy and weird or maybe just impossible uh, seem attractive to people who would, who would have reflexively rejected it not too long ago, you know, from the military to the C-suites um, to, to the locker rooms to the hallways of network newscasts, um, which is all fascinating, I think. And, and while complicated, in my view, mostly good, you know, 90% good. I, apparently I have a knack for using percentages. Um, uh, so, but, so I would say the science is the big thing. And then I would say one other thing that just comes to mind is the fact that we're so bombarded by sensory input in the form of uh, 
computers and mobile devices, and I think people feel that their attention is more fractured than ever. Now, now I'm very comfortable with percentages. I love numbers, and I'm glad that you're bringing them up right here in the beginning. So what's the 10% of meditation entering the mainstream in this way that you don't think is good or potentially isn't good? Well, I would just say complicated. I mean, I am I you know pay a, a very close attention to the voices of people who are worried about quote unquote mic mindfulness uh that that something has been lost in the secularizing of uh of Buddhist meditation um and you know I think the these folks make a, a lot of good points um uh overall my my view is that more mindfulness is better than less mindfulness and uh even if people uh, we may disagree with. I'm not sure who I, who I mean by we, but uh, even if people uh, that you disagree with are are adopting this this uh, practice that you hold dear, I think it's better for them to be more mindful than less mindful. Uh, that that being said, I do worry a little bit about um, the loss of emphasis on compassion in the mainstreaming of mindfulness and. Uh, you know, my answer to that is that we we ought to do for mindfulness what's been done for compassion, which is to cast it in self-interested terms. And by the way, the Dalai Lama himself does this. He talks about, you know, uh, wise selfishness as opposed to stupid selfishness. I'm not sure he uses the word stupid, but something along those lines. Um, and, and I, you know, I talk about this in my book at length. I, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, but I you, you certainly can swear. Go for it. Don't okay, hold cool. back. Yeah. So I call it the self-interested case for not being a dick. And, uh, you know, I think that, that there's uh, common sense and also scientific arguments that can be mustered for for compassion. You know, research shows that people who are compassionate are happier and healthier, more successful. Um, and furthermore, research, very compelling research, seems to suggest that people who do compassion meditation can make themselves more compassionate. Um, and so I've just found that in, in my own life to, that, for, that this is very powerful. And I think that if you can do this, uh, make these kinds of arguments for compassion, that will fill, I think, one of the major holes that's, that's come about or been created as a result of the mainstreaming. I'll tell you what my concern is with the mainstreaming of meditation and see what you think. My concern is that the way that it's often described as a self-improvement technique, it kind of bolsters up like, you can do this and you can become better at this, better at that. You'll focus more. You'll be more relaxed when it's your turn to speak on the microphone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to, in your own language, in your book, 10% Happier, It's a meditation is a superpower. And it, mm -hmm. it's portrayed as this thing that actually, in a way, bolsters you could say the ego, the sense of self, my mm. power and control in the world. I think that's the thing personally that bothers me. I'm curious what you think about that. It doesn't bother me. It, clearly, it doesn't bother me because I, I'm like the loudest voice um, arguing for this. Uh, it, you know, I, I reserve the right to disavow everything I say in this podcast and everything I've written in my book. But at this point, I, I, I do the exact opposite. I'll double down. I, I think that you got to meet people where they are, to use a cliche, and um, to make this practice um, attractive to people, I think you need to cast it in terms of self-interest. Uh, I don't think you're going to get there through 
moralizing, finger-wagging, or talking about the obliteration of the self, which people don't even understand. Um, I'm not even sure I understand that. Uh, I mean, I've been poking around in Buddhism for, you know, five years, which isn't a long time, but it's enough. It's enough. Uh, and uh, so I don't think that your, your, your average American or your average citizen of the, this planet is going to is going to find that the traditional presentation attractive. And we do know that it can be good for people in lots of ways. Um, so I don't think it's wrong. I don't think that, first of all, I don't think it's false advertising. And second of all, I don't, I don't see the, the damage that's done from this presentation. But I invite you cordially to disabuse me of all of those notions. Well, let's just take it a little further. So in my own experience with meditation, it's quote-unquote disassembled me in a certain kind of way. Some of the things I used to believe, I question everything now. So many different perspectives make sense to me in a given moment. There's a way that I don't feel in charge in the same way. I feel a sense of being moved by something bigger than me that comes through me. Now, I know this could start sounding metaphysical and that that's not your favorite direction to go in. But what I'm curious about here, Dan, is here you are, you've been meditating. And I'm curious if any experiences have come in that feel like disassemblage, if you will, for you, that don't make you feel more like Mr. Superpower, but something else is actually happening. Um, well, nothing... I don't hear what you're saying as metaphysical per se, uh, and I find all of that really fascinating, and um, I'm envious of it. Uh, I think that is a sign of somebody who's been practicing um, in probably a much more rigorous way and for much longer than I've been practicing, but these are all experiences, what you describe, that I would love to have. Uh, and I do think that there are stages of practice. There's the shallow end of the pool, there's the kiddie pool, and then there's the deeper end of the pool. And um, motivations change, as we know, the longer you practice. And um, but I, and so where I'm at in my practice and the things I'm interested in personally are a little bit different from what I talk about to the broad audience that I address. But I'm that's because I am, to use a loaded phrase, mindful of what is going to be attractive, I think, to people who have no experience to this and are probably approach it with a level of hostility. Uh, because I, I, I'm, I feel like I can talk to those people because that was me not too long ago. Um, so I don't think we, I actually think we agree on more than you may think we agree on. Uh, those experiences that you're describing, I would like to get there. I think we do too, incidentally. I feel it. I feel it, Dan. I feel our agreement. Okay, so you write in 10% Happier that meditation has a PR problem, which is, I think, part of what we're talking about here. So I'm curious, if you were in charge of branding meditation in the world, creating a new brand for it, publicizing it, how would you put meditation out into the world? Well, first of all, I wouldn't change the name. I've had this argument uh, with a lot of uh, uh, a lot of our people you know too. I'm sure a lot of our friends in the quote unquote mindfulness movement or whatever you want to call it, um, re trying to rebrand it as you know mental fitness or um, or mindfulness practice. Uh, I think is is uh, is you're, you're never going to get somebody sitting down with their eyes closed and trick them into, they're going to know they're meditating. Uh, so you might as well just call it what it is. 
I think that you we just need to tra- tra- change the connotations around it. Um, I think we need to get people. Um, we need to disabuse people of of these uh, notions they have about meditation, like it's only for you know this strange little subculture of um, uh, of folks who've been doing it since the the beat poets brought it over, um, or uh, or two that it's it involves magically clearing the mind, which most of us you know know is intuitively just not possible unless you've you know had a ton of practice. Uh, or three that it involves, you know, going away and and spending, you know, cloistering yourself at some monastery. Um, so th- those are all the, that, that's those are all the things I think the, the the change in the messaging I think we need to get out there. But overall, I think that this is an imperfect analogy, but I, I I use it because it's fine as far as it goes. I think comparing it to to exercise is is the right beginner's analogy for people who are coming to this clean and cold. So what would be your advice? And I'm just curious, you know, I've been in this field now with Sounds True for 30 years. I think a lot of Sounds True listeners have been at this for a long time. Of course, there's new people coming in, too. What would be your advice to how to help bring mindfulness meditation into the culture at large and not have this kind of elitist attitude? Don't turn it into McMindfulness. Don't sell it as a superpower. What would be, do you think, a more effective approach? Help me here, Dan. Well, I'm just going to think out loud. Well, and say a couple things. I don't know if this will answer the question. And you can just, if I fail to answer the question, just keep pushing me. Um, first of all, I just want to be clear that that I think, and I believe this very strongly, that there is a real need, is, is for as much fun as I make of of the kind of Buddhist subculture in America, I'm part of it now, for sure. And, you know, I'm you know you can define buddhist in lots of ways or you can even say that buddhism is um is reifying something that is uh, empty at its very core um but by by many definitions i am a buddhist and i am a student of joseph goldstein i read his most recent book which i believe you published i'm on the th- the fourth read through of that book um uh, i go to retreats at ims and and spirit rock and um, you know, uh, I have gifts from Sharon Salzberg in my baby room, uh, where, where our new child sleeps. So I'm, you know, in this world and I'm deeply, deeply convinced that the people who are publishing books for Buddhists and teaching, uh, Buddhist meditation are doing a huge service. And I want, I'm a consumer of this. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that, that none of that should change or stop. I also think that there's a pivot that needs to happen to make it palatable to a broader audience, but I don't think these things are mutually exclusive, and I don't think a lot of the people who are providing the aforementioned service to Buddhists um, uh, are, are precluded from all, from being part of that pivot. I think you can do two things at once. Um, interestingly, a, a lot of the folks here in, in New York City, uh, Seventy Selassie, who, who uh, runs New York Insight Meditation Center, um, you know, they, a lot of their teachers teach both Vipassana and um, MBSR, and they're great at it. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm, so I, I, so I just want to be clear that um, I just want to be clear that I think there's a ton of value there that I don't think should be uh, erased as this thing goes more and more mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, now I now I feel like I've lost the thread a little bit. Push push me again if you will. Well, I, I'm I'm interested in something slightly different because you mentioned that you were years ago, decade ago, hostile 
towards meditation. So, And because of that, you can help now be a bridge to people who perhaps have that kind of hostility today or just beginning to open their mind to it and there's a crack. Yeah. And yeah. I So I'd be curious to know, why were you hostile? Why do you think people out there are hostile towards meditation? I think I reflexively, mindlessly bought into all the stereotypes that I listed before. I just thought it was, you know, impossible, highly, you know, you had to sit in a funny position um, uh, and maybe join a group and wear special outfits. And, you know, I'm a fidgety guy. I don't, I don't want to, it was deeply unattractive to me for those reasons. Um, I, I, you know, I assumed that the only people who did it, you know, wore uh, wool socks with Birkenstocks over them and uh, were, you know, like the hippie parents of my uh, childhood. Uh, I'm just free associating here. I just had all these complete, completely ignorant uh, uh, assumptions to the extent that I even thought about meditation at all, because I don't actually think I thought about it. Um, but if you had, you know, stopped me on the street seven years ago and said, said, um, if give me a stream of consciousness about meditation. Those are probably some of the things I would have said that this is for, you know, people who are really into making dream catchers and wear little finger symbols and use the word namaste without irony. Um, so why do I think that people, that was the question. Why do, yeah. why do I think that people are hostile? I think it's just ignorance. They haven't been, you know, told the truth. And now having been a meditator now for five years in many ways now being a public champion, we could say, of meditation, you've actually predicted, and I heard this in a talk, and also it's in your book, 10% Happier, that a public health revolution is on the horizon in which more and more people will think of meditation like exercise, brushing their teeth, will be able to do walking meditation at the rest stop on a long drive. I'll walk slowly you know, right there in the long rest stop up and down the parking lot and, you know, nobody will call the police or throw something at me. I mean, really? Is that going to happen? What do I know? I mean, this is my prediction. When I make this prediction, I always provide the caveat that my powers of prognostication are historically weak. And I make a joke about the fact that I, you know, strong armed my little brother into uh, in the early 2000s into investing in the company that made the Palm Pilot, which, you know, didn't work out so well. So, I mean, this is this is my prediction based, I think, on a reasonable amount of evidence. But well, I, don't, I don't you know, I can't I can't guarantee it. Um, but, but I do think there's a reasonable amount of evidence. And I, I think the exercise analogy here is where I think it actually holds up that uh, um, as I like to point out, in the 1940s, if if you told somebody you were going running, they probably would have said, "Who's chasing you?" And what happened? The scientists swooped in and and illustrated that uh, there are many many benefits, both physical and psychological, to to exercise. And now we all do it, and if we don't, we feel guilty about it. And I think it seems to me that's where we're headed with meditation. And there seems to be a lot of signs to support that, but. There are any number of reasons why this trend could could evaporate uh, overnight. They won't stop me from meditating, but it may stop others. I'm curious, Dan, why you have felt motivated to put yourself out in this way as the poster child, if you will, one of the news anchors, one of a couple news anchors who want to be public about their meditation life. What's your motivation in doing it? Um, I think the motivation, I think there are two. One is more lofty and one's a little bit more crass. Um, I, on the crass 
side, I think that um, it's a good story. And uh, I love covering good stories. And I, to me, this seemed like an untold story, this budding little movement. You know, bear in mind, I started working on this long before it was on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, so I really felt like I was on to something. Uh, and I also felt that I had a bit of an entrepreneurial itch when I first started getting interested in meditation. I, re you know, I read all these great books, but I realized that these great books that I was reading about meditation, which we've all read, really didn't speak to somebody like me, you know, raised in the age of irony. They were all sort of written by people ra raised in the age of Aquarius. And, um, and I thought, okay, th th I might be able – I don't have any original ideas, but I might be able to rephrase some of these amazing ideas in a way that would be attractive to you know, a broader audience. And then I think on, a loftier, on the loftier side, uh, I, I, really do, it, I really did experience and continue to experience a lot of genuine benefits in my life, in my moment-to-moment -moment life from the practice. And I feel a desire to share it with other people. Uh, now, I um, I really try to avoid one-on-one -on -one proselytizing because I f I know that can be very very annoying. I, I uh, there was a a cartoon in the New Yorker recently that had two women talking to each other over lunch, and one of them says to the other, "I've been gluten free for a week, and I'm already annoying." <laughs> um, so I, I bear that in mind. So I try not to walk around lecturing people about the benefits of meditation, but I don't have any problem getting up publicly and telling my story and saying, you know, you might want to consider this. And um, thus far, it seems to be working out. I mean, it's every every day I, I get messages on Facebook and Twitter from people who said I wouldn't have tried this, and now I am, and it's making a difference. And um, you know, I heard from a guy who um, who was con considering suicide, a recovering addict, and um, he went and learned how to meditate and, you know, obviously continues to do AA, and it's not the only thing, but um, that it really has made a huge difference for him, and uh, and he's in a much better place while he still has challenges. And, you know, the stories like that makes me, makes me think that this is uh, a worthwhile endeavor, even though it's, parts of it have been pretty embarrassing. I mean, I really see myself as kind of a gateway drug that if I can talk, about, if I can get people in the door, then they can go and read a book by Sharon uh, or Joseph and, and that, they, that the, 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 the phraseology and the terminology won't be off-putting for them because they'll have been initiated. Well, I think you're providing a tremendous service. You know, a statement like that from someone who's more in the age of Aquarius than the age of irony. And I want to pull that out for a moment because it's interesting to me that you said that because I noticed as I was reading your book, I thought, God, you know, I don't immerse myself in this kind of, I guess you would call it ironic way of talking about people. I mean, you know, that you have your section on Eckhart Tolle. Genius or lunatic, I think. <laughs> I think, yeah, genius or lunatic. I mean, nobody in the sounds true canon would ever say something like that exactly, I think, out loud and in public. Eckhart Tolle, genius or lunatic. But here's the question. I realized that on the one hand, I mean, I laughed out loud reading your book several times. You know, early in the morning, there I was, you know, huddled in my pajamas in a silk comforter, but I was laughing out loud, you know, every couple chapters. But I also felt a little uncomfortable. And I felt a little uncomfortable because in a way it was like on the edge of mean. You weren't quite yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. but it was the edge of mean. And I'm not used to that. 
So I'm curious about that, this idea of introducing meditation to people in the age of irony. I never would have been able to name that, but I think you're naming something really important. Yeah, I don't know anything other than that. I mean, it's just the way I was raised, and uh, it's the culture in which I came up, and this is the way a lot of us talk. And I just had this gut feeling that if I could take these fantastic teachings and put them and use use swear words and be self-deprecating uh that it would um that it, w- it would be attractive to a lot of people and just you're right some of the things in the book are edge of mean but there's nobody in the book and this is by design there's nobody in the book maybe only one person in the book who doesn't get redeemed by the end and, you know, so I come back to Eckhart Tolle at the end and talk about him in, a, in an entirely different way. So um, and the only the only person who I let, the only character in the book who I, who I definitely don't let off the hook is me. Uh, and so, I, I mean, I think that's OK. Uh, so I was really aware of not of really trying not to um, be what I think Buddhists would refer to as sort of unethically unkind um, in the book. And I, you know, definitely walk the line. Um, but I, you know, I would feel badly if it could be pointed out to me in a, in a pretty obvious way that I, uh, that I crossed the line that then I would feel badly. I'd probably endeavor not to do that in my next book. Actually, I don't think you did, which is why I think what I'm trying to tease out here is when you said that, writing from the age of irony. I guess I want to know more what you mean by that, because I think that's the thing that I couldn't quite name that I was feeling. You know, to me, if, to me, uh, there is, there is something, uh, that I don't trust about, uh, at least the old me did that. I didn't trust about, um, anything that wasn't a little bit funny. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, I just think it's, you know, I, for, I didn't grow up watching, uh, I grew up watching Seinfeld, you know, that that was the, the, the seminal show of my youth, right? And, and the Simpsons. Uh, that is just, uh, it's just in the, in the water for my generation and, um, and, and on down, I think. Um, and when some people are too, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I'm having trouble finding the word, but, uh, um, when people speak in a way that is, uh, that is so uh, lacking in irony, there's a word and I'll come to it as soon as we end this phone conversation. Uh, it, somehow for me, it just, I, I wonder whether it's disingenuous. I know that's an unfair thought, but it is the thought that does arise. And, uh, you know, I know better, of course, and now having spent a reasonable amount of time um, with Buddhists, that that's not the case. But uh, that was just my initial reaction. And I, I think consciously or subconsciously for a lot of people out there who aren't part of this world, that's the way they feel, too. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs 
and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Now, at this point, you've covered a lot of stories for network news on meditation and mindfulness. And I'm curious which stories have made the biggest impact on you. We know interviewing the Dalai Lama made an impact. Um, just to just to pick one. Uh, you know, I went into that interview with a bit of a bad attitude because to me, the Dalai Lama represented the part of of uh, this culture with which I I was and actually to an extent still am least comfortable. You know, the the robes and the and and quite a few metaphysical claims including, you know, rebirth and um and the whole calling him of his holiness. You know, I mean what I like about Buddhism is and there isn't a lot of holiness. The Buddhists keep it real. We're talking about uh, you know, the the uh how the the body falls apart and, uh, uh, you know, what happens to your food when you eat it and uh, you're really forced to sort of confront everything that will, de- you know, devour us. I like that. So I, the the, um, the Dalai Lama and that whole scene was set off my, um, raised my antenna just a little bit. But then meeting him in person, I was impressed by a lot of things. Um uh one was was that he said right away that if anything in in the scientific community were to pop up that disproved any of the notions that he and and his uh, brethren espouse he would drop it i like that um mm-hmm. i also asked him whether he ever gets into a bad mood and he said no that's i get bad, i get into a bad mood all the time <laughs> and anybody who says they don't get into a bad mood uh they must be from outer space and you know Eckhart Tolle and Deepak Chopra and a lot of these other gurus they'll tell you they never get into a bad mood <laughs> which seems to me uh you know at least in Deepak's case to be demonstrably untrue i've been with Deepak when he's been clearly in a bad mood um yeah. So uh, I like that. That that made a big difference. And I, I also think the biggest thing that, that the Dalai Lama said to me that, that, that I found to be compelling was this idea of the selfish case to be made for compassion. That is a, there is a wise selfishness there and, and that your your life is happier, you're less angry, uh, you're less tied up in your own ego when you're concerned with the well-being of others. Okay, so you work in this very competitive environment, I imagine. Network news, the world of network news, very competitive, yes? Yes, for sure. I'm curious how it's going for you these days, being a meditator in such an environment. Right now, it's going great. Um, I I won't rule out... uh, you know, I will get. I will pretty much guarantee there will be crises. I'm sure, um, but right now things are great, and I think, you know, I there's at least one very specific way, maybe two, specific ways in which my becoming a Buddhist meditator has really helped. Um, one is that, uh, and I talk about this in the book that that being more be, this is on the anchor desk. I, 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 one of the things I do here at ABC is I anchor the weekend edition of GMA, and I 
I'm sitting on this desk every weekend morning with five other, four other people, any of whom can say whatever they want at any point. Uh, I used to be very tense and uncomfortable, like a cat in a room full of rocking chairs in that situation, because I had this urge to control everything. And I was always kind of seven steps ahead, thinking about how we're going to get out of any particular conversation we were in and into the next commercial break and all that stuff. And really, the practice has helped me drop a lot of that, at least the sort of unhelpful parts of that, and focus a little bit more on what people are actually saying so that I can have a more spontaneous and sometimes uh, maybe amusing reaction. And uh, I found that to be a a really terrific professional value add. And then the other thing is um, just improved relationships with the people in my orbit. Um, You know, just, just really being conscious of the fact that when somebody walks into my office, I should walk away from my computer. I, I work at a standing desk, so I just walk away from my pu- computer screen and give them my attention while they're in my office instead of do, you know, kind of checking my email where somebody's uh, trying to talk to me. And by the way, those conversations are much more successful and quicker when I'm actually listening. Uh, and uh, I get an email this morning from a colleague who we're working on a big project together, and she said, you know, thanks for trusting us, she was referring to her and her team, enough to be to feel like we can be creative. Uh, and I and I wasn't even aware that I was doing that, that, that just um, enjoying being part of a team and realizing that I can't do anything on my own, especially this business is very collaborative, uh, and wanting to be, you know, wanting the people around me to be successful and, 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 and also deriving a lot of benefits from uh, mutual respect and concern you know, that we do better work, and that ends up redounding to my benefit. Do people in the environment where you work do they tease you at all for your meditation? You know, they interest? did. They, they, well, they they certainly they they still tease me for lots of reasons. Um, uh, I don't get any respect around here. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I take a lot of verbal abuse for uh, for a lot of things, and yeah, the meditation for sure is uh, something that people tease me about. But it's not actually is you know, when I first started doing it, I, people, I got a lot of funny looks and it was, it was, uh, <laughs> it was a little strange. But now it's really taken off in ABC. You know, uh, George Stephanopoulos, Diane Sawyer, both meditate. Barbara Walters says she tried it, but it didn't take. Um, uh, ben Sherwood, who's the head of ABC, was until recently the head of ABC News and now the head of all of ABC. He also meditates. Um, and there's uh, an active meditation group that Dr. Rich Besser, who's our on-air doctor, um, he, he and his team, there there are mindfulness sessions uh, in their corner of the building, not infrequently, a couple times a week. And in fact, in February, there's going to be a mindfulness uh, little mindfulness conference at ABC News for the employees. Um, Sharon Salzberg's coming in, and a few other. Um, uh, prominent voices are coming in to talk to the team about the benefits of, of meditation. So at this point, it's not like a ridiculous thing to do anymore. Do you think there are any places where the cultural norm of a competitive environment bangs up against this interest in people meditating? And it's just like, wow, this, like, this just doesn't fit together because the culture is not really shifting, even if a few individuals are. Well, look, I mean, I, I think if you talk to any of the folks, the researchers uh, like Amishi Ja or um, uh, the folks in, in, involved with MFIT, um, 
about their work with the Army and the Marines, respectively, uh, I think they'll tell you that they've run into a lot of cultural issues, and that's going to be a, that's going to be a long, tricky road. Um, so that's one example. Um, but I mean, I'm, it's heartening to see that the Seattle Seahawks embraced it with a certain robustness. Uh, and uh, you know, I know. Um, Phil Jackson, the former coach of the Bulls and the Lakers, is now using it with the New York Knicks. hasn't been improving their performance, uh, but uh, I don't. As far as I know, there hasn't been a lot of um, pushback from the team. So it seems to me that if if framed correctly, you can it's seemingly introduce it into almost any culture. I don't know that the the idiots from ISIS would, would uh, want it in their culture per se, but I think there are a lot of cultures in, in the, on the extreme end and the sort of macho end of, of American society that appear to be quite surprisingly embracing it. Now, Dan, a big section of your book, 10% Happier, talks about your search to try to balance ambition or drive with equanimity. And I'm wondering, first of all, just how's that going for you? always it's a, just an ongoing tough balance um, it's an ongoing tough balance but the, the 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 mantra I come back to all the time was sort of given to me offhandedly by Joseph Goldstein at a retreat at Spirit Rock back in 2010 when uh, toward the end of the retreat it was a 10-day retreat he was saying to the retreatants that um, you know, we're toward the end here. You're going to find your mind inclining toward uh, the things you need to do when you um, when you leave here. You know, you may want to try to be aware of that and and uh, try to try to focus on 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 what's happening here. And I raised my hand and said, "Well, wait a minute. You know, I, I, if I miss my flight, that it, that's a real issue. Um, and you know, I don't think it's illegitimate to be wonder, worrying about that." And he said, absolutely. But on the 17th time that you find yourself worrying about what happens if you miss your flight, maybe ask yourself, is this useful? And it, that was a hallelujah moment for me because I realized that is this, such a scalable piece of advice. So on the 17th time that I'm wondering about all the awful consequences of one of my colleagues getting an assignment that I wanted, uh, I asked myself, is this useful? And most of the time, it's not useful to continue thinking about that, to you know, perseverating about that. And, and maybe it would be more useful to focus on the work I have to do right now or listening to the things my wife wants me to hear, uh, staring at my baby in, in disbelief that we were able to create this thing or what, any number of other more useful things. And uh, so it's an ongoing balance. But I, I think that, uh, again, because of Buddhist practice, it's getting – it's an easier balance to strike. And would you say there's a change in how you receive criticism now that you've been meditating for a while? Is it different? Yeah. I oftentimes, if not every time, the same sort of, I can feel the sort of defensiveness arise. Um, but some percentage of the time, I'm able to just recognize, oh, okay, this is an uh, unconstructive um urge I'm feeling right now, uh, and I can let let that be, uh, let it pa- let it go, and um, try to, to to listen to what people are saying and extract from it what is useful. 
Okay, there's an interesting quote from 10% Happier that I'd love to have you comment on. And here it is. You say towards the end of the book, in my view, Buddhists underplay the utility of constructive anguish. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That's provocative. What's the utility yeah, you know, of I, constructive I don't, I anguish? I disagree. You know, here I'm going to disagree with Joseph um, uh, Goldstein. Uh, this is the only thing he's ever said that I disagree with. And maybe if he was here, he could he could win the debate at, um, or, or tell me that I understood it incorrectly. But he quoted some teacher approvingly uh, as saying, you know, the and maybe maybe this teacher isn't the only person who said this because uh, I I feel like I've heard it elsewhere too. But something along the lines of you know, um, worrying is useless because if you've got a problem, if there's a solution to the problem, just execute the solution. And if there isn't, then there's nothing to do. Um, yeah, I'm not actually sure that's true. In my world, there are lots of things where it's not so clear. Uh, it's not so cut and dried. And it's actually worrying. Um, there's, there is a lot of utility to it. And um, figuring out what the right move is and, and what the ethical move is and tactical, the strategic uh, aspect of it, uh, that there's a certain amount of hand-wringing, I think, that makes sense. The, the the trick is to figure out when are we making our suffering worse than it needs to be. And again, to me, I think when we're talking about a professional, the professional uh, value add of meditation, this is really a biggie. What do you think of that? Of what you just said? Yeah, do because uh, I'm 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 always aware that I could be wrong. Well, I think that the term that you use, constructive anguish. Anguish is a pretty big, harsh word. I mean, it makes me think of like pulling my hair out. And even the word worrying is not, I mean, I think it's possible to solve problems and deeply consider, reflect without necessarily, and even be disturbed. Like there's a word like being disturbed, the positive consequences of disturbance. But anguish, I don't know. That's a... Often when I'm in anguish, I'm not doing my most creative thinking. Yeah, you know, I, you, I'll buy that. I think you, you may be right. Um, and I'm actually thinking about this a lot, which is why I really wanted to get your view on it, because, you know, I'm trying to figure out what my next book might be. And one of the things I've thought about is really to dive into how people are applying mindfulness in a professional context and really uh, get into it in a more granular way, uh, the benefits of mindfulness at work. And, uh, you know, talking about the value of worrying and stress is of interest to me because, you know, I may just have the language off um, or I may have my concept, I may have it wrong conceptually. Um, if, but there ha there is some interesting research. Uh, there was a great article in the Times magazine, I think like five years ago, about uh, the utility of depression yeah, and there's some sort of rogue psychologists out there who believe that that you know uh, problems, our ability to problem solve goes up when we're depressed. That there may be an evolutionary benefit to depression. Yeah, um, and and so I, I'm I'm kind of aware of that, and also just in my own experience that when I'm when I'm trying to solve a problem, it's often kind of painful, um, and 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 yet uh, the, when done correctly, I can reach a solution even though it is a little painful. Mm -hmm. Now, your book is called 10% Happier. Explain to our listeners, if you will, the title of your book, 
10% happier. I'm sure they could guess, but I'd love for them to hear it from you. Well, it's, I mean, it's a joke. Uh, it's an absurdly unscientific estimate. I am not guaranteeing anybody 10% happiness uh, boost, uh, nor do I think you can measure it. Um, it's uh, There are a couple of reasons why I came up with the name. One is that in my early days as a meditator, back when this is uh, ABC News was a less congenial place uh, to meditation, uh, I, I got a lot of people kind of sort of looked at me askance. And in in one of my conversations with a colleague about what she was asking me, why what's going on with you in this whole meditation thing? After a series of unsuccessful encounters along these lines, I out of nowhere answered, oh, you know, I do it because it makes me about 10% happier. And I noticed that in that moment, the look on her face was transformed from one of something approaching scorn to uh, something uh, approaching interest. Uh, and um, I realized that they, this was not a bad way to frame it um, for skeptics. Also, in my um, peregrinations um, in the self-help and Buddhist world, but mostly in the self-help world, I met a lot of people who really did advertise silver bullets. And um, I came to realize that the only people who had all their problems solved because of a self-help book were the people who were writing them. And um, that the idea <laughs> that you, um, you know, you could read this book and get anything you want through the power of positive thinking is bullshit and dangerous bullshit and uh, irresponsible. And so I'm kind of trying to counter program against that. Um, now, of course, this gets into some interesting terrain when you start uh, talking in a, in a more Buddhist context, because uh, uh, will be obvious to anybody listening to this podcast as uh, Buddhists talk about enlightenment, which, um, I mean, if I read the text correctly, does seem to indicate it not a, not only 100% happier, but 100% happy. Um, uh, and, and again, as we all know, it's not like some sort of um, unsophisticated uh, elation. Um, it's more of just uh, the uprooting of the of the uh, defilements or whatever you want to call them. And uh, so I don't know where I stand on that. But I'm increasingly open to it uh, more than I ever thought I would be. Well, what I'm curious about is not the billboard 10% happier and how that works with skeptics, but since you like numbers and percentages, how much happier are you really than you were five, six, seven years ago? I've started to say that the 10% compounds annually. Oh, I like that. And so I do think, I, I do think that's true. To the extent that there's any truth with these ridiculous numbers I'm throwing out, but it's true enough. Let's just say uh, I I drew a graph recently. Um, uh, you know, the, you know the concept of uh, the that psychologists use of the happiness set point that we, when good things happen to us or bad things happen to us, uh, we you know we can be happy or sad for a little while, but we all tend to gravitate back to this happiness set point. So my my in this graph I drew, um, I, sh I showed that for me post meditation, that if you if you draw a uh, horizontal line as the happiness set point, and then a wavy line uh, above and below it, uh, you know, so that it goes the the curve goes up when good things happen, and it goes down below the happiness set point when bad things happen. For me, the top of the graph has gotten bigger. So when good things happen, like we as I mentioned, we had a baby a, a couple of weeks ago, so that that's it's been really good because um 
to the, to an extent that I wouldn't have been able to to uh, to pull off a couple of years ago. I'm 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 not you know racing on to the next time. I'm actually paying attention to what's happening right now and and really enjoying uh, being a dad. And uh, then when bad things happen, like um, we had to give blood the other day, and I almost wept in the in the um, uh, doctor's office. You know, I, I I'm, I'm I recover much more quickly. I'm I'm not spinning off into you know rounds and rounds of um, useless propuncia, one of my favorite Buddhist terms of you know just proliferating off into endless worry. Yeah, I do some of that, but less than I used to. Um, so the top of the graph has gotten taller and the bottom of the um, graph has gotten more shallow. And meanwhile, I think the set point goes up um, so, so that you're just your your happiness, your baseline happiness goes up. Again, I'm pulling all this out of my butt, but this is just kind of the way I feel. Now, this is a little bit of a personal question I want to ask you, and it has back to do with this age of irony thing. What do you think about sincerity? Just plain this sincerity. is what I was trying to get at before. That's the word I was trying to get at before. Uh, well, actually, it isn't exactly the word I was trying to get at before. Um, uh, that will come to me. But there is something about sincerity that I think, for better or for worse, I'm not defending this, um, among people in my, not everybody, but I think it's in among certain members of my generation and maybe the generation uh, uh, coming up behind me, uh, where sincerity can make you just a little bit uncomfortable, um, and <laughs> uh, and so uh, that is, I don't. Know, that's not to say that the things um, I'm talking about are, um, that I'm being insincere. I truly do believe that meditation is 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 useful to to a lot of people, if not everyone. And so I will, you know, I will go to great lengths to to preach the good news on that front. Um, so I am sincere in that, in that, but I mean, my way of saying it involves a lot of, um, you know, foul language and, um, and humor. Um, but, but overall, I'm, I mean, increasingly as I, you know, get older and meditate more and, um, you know, lose my edge in all sorts of ways, um, I'm increasingly comfortable with sincerity. You know, I mean, I hug my friends all the time and mean it. Right. Now, this thing, though, you just said, lose your edge. You're not really losing your edge, Dan. That's yeah, the I'm whole kidding. point. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kidding. Well, your career is growing, and I mean, your profile is growing. You have a beautiful new baby. I mean, I, you know, meaning your life is flourishing. It appears. Yes. Yes. Although, you know, I try to, I'm very aware that, uh, you know, there doesn't end happily for all of us, uh, for anybody, really, you know, it, it, it's all, it's, uh, it's all, you know. I try to be aware of impermanence to the best of my ability. Um, but yes, right now things are amazing, and I, 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 I really, really do my best not to take it for granted. Okay, I just have two more questions for you. When you started the book Ten Percent Happier, you traced back to when you had an on-air panic attack a little more than mm -hmm. a decade ago, and I'm curious: Do you ever have a fear? that you'll have a panic attack again on the air. Do I ever have a fear? Yeah. Does that Every fear arise? Every time I go on the television, yes. Wow. Every time I go on TV, I have that fear. So it's not like once in a while. It's like every time. Wow. You can't, you know, if you have a panic attack, your brain gets very good at panicking. 
Um, so it's, you know, it, it, you're just you're just more susceptible to it, and I'm aware of it. As I was reading about the panic attack and thinking of interviewing you, I was sure I was going to have a panic attack during this conversation, just even thinking about having a panic attack, and I've never even had one. But, you know, is that, is that <laughs> terrifying? panic attack is, is propuncia on steroids. That's really what it is. It's, it's, it's proliferation, um, just, just really fast and really bad. Um, so I think in Buddhist terms, people can really understand it if you think of it that way. Um, it, it's, it's just nothing scarier. It was the scariest, most embarrassing moment of my life. And so if that comes up for you every time you're on the air and you're on the air many times a week, what do you do when that feeling comes up? Uh, I try to be aware of it, try to be mindful of it and, uh, see it for what it is. You know, I, I'm not. Uh, again, I am not a, uh, um, a, a meditation master by any stretch. But one of the big benefits is that when things arise, you can um, kind of objectify them and see them, see the emotions or urges or whatever for what they are. Um, and th that that works. That you know, it's not a it's not a silver bullet. And you know, I. I while the the fear comes up, it's much more psychological than it is physical now. In other words, I'm not actually experiencing a massive release of adrenaline, which is what happens in a panic attack. And I'm less likely to have that happen because I'm not using drugs anymore. Um, you know, we haven't gone into this yet in this conversation, but for your listeners who don't know this part of the story, the reason why I had a panic attack on live television in 2004 is that I had gotten depressed after covering... Um, war zones for ABC News as a young reporter and came came home from one of the war, from Iraq and and mindlessly self-medicated with recreational drugs including cocaine and ecstasy and that is what you know I later learned from my doctor most likely created the condition the causes and conditions for that panic attack because it it you know, raised the overall level level of adrenaline in my brain uh so since so since I haven't been doing drugs for eight or nine or 10 years, you know, I'm less, I know I'm less likely to have a panic attack. So, and I, and I just want to be clear. I don't think that, uh, meditation is somehow the, uh, the guaranteed cure for panic attacks. It isn't. Um, but it, it's, it, it certainly helps. And I think also removing other aggravating factors like cocaine also <laughs> helps. Okay, Dan, one final question. This program is called insights at the edge. And I'm always curious to know what someone's edge is in terms of their personal growth, like what the it is that really you're consciously working on in your life right now. I mean, so many things. Uh, I mean, this is this is the value of having an amazing teacher because they're in, in Joseph, you know, and that amazing book that you put out, um, my, um, mindfulness, uh, which is just chock full of useful things, uh, little exercises that help you scale your practice off the cushion and into the rest of your life. Uh, so let me just say that as one thing, one edge I'm trying to push, which is really not um, quarantining my mindfulness to the 30 minutes uh, uh, that I practice every day. It's just trying to, to have it, um, this is a 
this is a negative term, but I mean it in a positive way, have it metastasized to the rest of my life, uh, to the best of my ability. And Joseph's book is just a great way to, is just so full with, filled with so many great suggestions for doing that, uh, from, you know, walking between meetings to, you know, li- listening to people to, uh, I, I, like, I keep talking about this, but, you know, just staring at my kid or, or you know, the moments before you fall asleep or the moments when you wake up, just infusing your whole life with that, I think is just a great project and incredibly fulfilling. Dan, thank you so much for your generosity. And I'm going to use the word, I think you're really a sincere person, actually. I feel it. And you're just wicked funny. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I do think, I think I, I, I would probably cop to being sincere on, on many levels. Um, and I really appreciate your feedback um, and, and ginger, uh, well-intentioned uh, uh, critique, because I, I, I try to be very, very, to the best of my ability, open to the fact that I'm, you know, of my, the fact of my own fallibility. So I'm, I'm willing to revise uh, lots of my assertions, and I appreciate your uh, your input. Dan Harris, the author of a new book, 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works, a true story. Thanks for being on Insights at the Edge, SoundsTrue.com, Many Voices, One Journey. Thanks for listening.